Thank you, Naomi, for reading God's Word to us, and welcome today on Palm Sunday. Today we're going to be looking at the journey of Jesus as he begins this entry into Jerusalem and drawing some parallels of that Jesus' journey should match our journey, or our journey actually should match the journey of Jesus. And we're going to try to learn some of the things that we can mirror in the life of this story of Palm Sunday. And much of what I'm going to be speaking and sharing about has been formed um, through reading some um, sermons by John Piper and um, recently a book um, called Radical by David Platt, who's a, a pastor and a speaker and an author, and he is really trying to shake up the American church, um, or North American church, so to speak, to get us to be alert to what does it mean to radically follow Jesus and abandon everything to follow after this King of Kings. So I'm going to be sharing some of these um, principles today, and let's first begin to look at Palm Sunday today and and, and to come. And the worship team has already led us in worshiping, and we read from Revelation this future, what would Palm Sunday look like when Jesus returns to earth, and we're going to look at some of those. But as Naomi has already read um, from Luke, Luke begins describing, actually Palm Sunday is, is chronicled in all four of the Gospels, but we're going to be looking just at the passage of Luke today. But Palm Sunday marks the beginning of the last week of the earthly life of Jesus. And in verses 37 and 38 it says, When Jesus came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. So as the people that are gathered there um, in Jerusalem on that day and watching Jesus approach, they, they watched this triumphal entry in Jerusalem. There is no doubt what was in the minds of the disciples on that day. They knew that this was the fulfillment of Zechariah's prophecy that had been prophesied centuries earlier. And from Zechariah 9, 9, and 10, it says, Shout, daughter Jerusalem, see your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation lowly and riding on a donkey. He will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. So let's take in this scene. This is what the disciples on that day were expecting. The crowd was expecting. As mentioned in Zechariah, the people were expecting the coming of a long-awaited Messiah, the King of Israel, and not just of Israel, but of the entire earth. Jerusalem would be his capital city, and for here he would rule the world in peace and righteousness. This was their expectation on that day. That's why there's so much building here. There is this idea that this was the day. The time has come. Can you imagine that their hearts must have been beating in their chests and the tension of that moment must have been quite tremendous? Because this was their expectation. Long last, this prophecy is going to be fulfilled. And there is going to be an earthly kingdom. And the Roman rule in Jerusalem is going to be overthrown. The Pharisees, on the other hand, wanted this kind of welcomed silence. Jesus was a threat to their authority. They envied his popularity. And they were afraid of all of this seditious talk about another king. And they feared that there would be a Roman backlash. 
And so they ask Jesus to say to his disciples, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. So Jesus will not rebuke his disciples for this. The hour has finally come, and he will not silence truth any longer. To be sure, the disciples' understanding of Jesus' kingship is flawed at this point. But the coming events will correct that soon enough. In essence, though, they are correct. Jesus is the king of Israel, and his kingdom is inaugurating and will bring peace to all nations and spread from sea to sea. The book of Revelation pictures the final judgment or the final fulfillment of Palm Sunday as we have already read in the age to come like this. Again from Revelation 7, 9, and 10. Picture this scene. It is beautiful. It is the coming Palm Sunday of what eventually all Christians will get to experience. And it's mentioned in Revelation. After this I looked and there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people, and language, standing before the throne and in front of the Lamb. They were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So the entry into Jerusalem with waving palms was actually very short-lived. But it is a preview of the eternal Palm Sunday. So can you imagine in this point, um, verse, they're talking about a sea of green. of um, that. Let me change mics so that you guys can listen a little bit better. Okay. So can you imagine on that final Palm Sunday that there is this sea of people gathered with every tribe and every people and every language and they are waving palms. Um, John Piper actually describes it very beautifully like this. He says, I like to think of all of our worship in this age as rehearsal for the age to come. One day we, who by God's grace have been faithful to the Lord, are going to stand with innumerable millions of believers from Bangladesh, Poland, Egypt, Australia, Iceland, Cameroon, Ecuador, Burma, Borneo, Japan, and thousands of tribes and peoples and languages purified by Christ with palms of praise in our hand. And when we raise them and salute to Christ, you will see almost an endless field of green shimmering with life and pulsating with praise. And then, like the sound of a thousand Russian choruses, we will sing our song of salvation with the mighty Christ, with heartfelt love, looks out over those whom he bought with his own blood. Won't that be a beautiful scene? So this picture that we see in Luke is just a preview of this ultimate fulfillment of the Palm Sunday that had come. So if Jesus had taken his throne on this very first day of palms, none of us would ever be robed in white or waving palms of praise in the age to come. There had to be a cross, and this is what the disciples had not yet understood. We're going to be looking at several passages from Luke 9. So back in Luke 9, as Jesus prepared to set out for Jerusalem from Galilee, he tried to explain this to his disciples. And if you'll remember, as you read the gospel account, most often the disciples don't get it. They can't quite picture. They're still having their minds that this earthly king, Jesus the Messiah, is going to establish this 
earthly authority. But Jesus is trying to prepare them all along. And in verse 22 of Luke 9, he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed and on the third day raised to life. And in verses 44 and 45 of Luke 9, he tells them, Listen carefully to what I'm about to tell you. The Son of Man is going to be delivered over to human hands. But they did not understand what he meant. It was hidden from them, so they did not grasp it. And they were afraid to ask him about it. So their understanding of Jesus' last journey to Jerusalem was flawed. They saw him as a king coming in to take control And he was, but they could not grasp that the victory Jesus would win in Jerusalem over sin and Satan and death and the enemies of righteousness and joy, that this victory would be won actually through horrible suffering and death. And that the kingdom which they thought would be established immediately would in fact be thousands of years in coming. We are still waiting for it to to be fulfilled. And their misunderstanding of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem results in a misunderstanding of the meaning of discipleship. This is important for us to see unless we make the same mistakes. So let's now look at Jesus' resolution to die, which is very something I personally can't even begin to grasp or even begin to identify, and yet it's at the cornerstone of our entire Christian faith. Luke 9, 51 through 56, we learn how not to understand Palm Sunday. It says, as the time approached for him to be taken up to heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. To resolutely set out for Jerusalem meant something very different for Jesus than it did for the disciples. The disciples envisioned a very different idea of greatness. If you remember, they're even arguing in this section of scripture. Who is going to be the greatest? Who's going to sit next to him in heaven? Uh, But Jesus had a vastly different vision in mind. Jerusalem meant one thing for certain in the mind of Jesus. It meant death. Nor was he under any illusion of a quick, heroic death. Luke 13 says, Jesus took the twelve aside and told them, We're going up to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the prophets, about the Son of Man, or by the prophets about the Son of Man, will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. When Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem, he set out to die. When you think of Jesus' resolution to die, remember that he had a nature like ours. He felt pain like we do. He would have enjoyed relationships. He had brothers and sisters and a mother and a father. He had special places in the mountains. To turn his back on all of this and set his face towards vicious whipping and beating and spitting and mocking and crucifixion was not easy. It was hard. I don't know for any other way for us to begin to understand how much he loved us. Scripture tries to tell us by saying, Greater love has no one than this, to lay one's life down for one's friends. So Jesus' resolution to die should actually be our journey. 
and this is where it gets hard. And I'm like, my knees want to buckle and say, I, my journey is supposed to mirror the journey of Jesus, and Scripture is actually very clear on this. So when Jesus sets out for Jerusalem, it says in Luke 9, 53, that he sent messengers on ahead who went into a Samaritan village to get things ready for him. But the people there did not welcome him because he was heading for Jerusalem. In this portion of scripture, ten chapters ahead of where we are today in today's passage, Jesus is already being rejected. And then the focus shifts to the disciples' response, specifically the response of James and John. Now, if you remember, what are James and John called? What is their, their nickname? The Sons of Thunder, right? So they're kind of, um, they've got a little fire underneath them. And so James and John asked Jesus in verse 54, Lord, do you want us to call fire down from heaven to destroy them? Because they're rejecting Jesus at this point, and they want to exact revenge. And I think I probably would have had some of the same opinions as John does here. Like, Jesus, we're on our way to victory. Nothing can stop us now. Finally, we're going to show them who's boss. We're going to roll into Jerusalem and take back this city for your glory, and you're going to establish your kingship. Um, They're going to tremble at us when they see us coming. Can't you see yourself saying that? Like, ah, we're going to show them. And Jesus turns to them and he rebukes them. And then they simply went on to another town. I'm sure the apostles must have been quite confused at this point. But Jesus, again, my uh, scripture in Isaiah says, My ways are not your ways, neither are my thoughts your thoughts. So what does all of this mean? It means, first of all, that a mistaken view of Jesus' journey to Jerusalem can lead to a mistaken view of what it means to follow Jesus. If Jesus had come to execute judgment and take up an earthly rule, then it would make sense for James and John to begin the judgment when this final siege of the holy city starts. But if Jesus had come not to judge but to save, then a radically different form of discipleship is in order here. Here is a question put to every believer by this text. Does following Jesus mean deploying God's missiles against the enemy in righteous indignation? Or does it mean following him on the Calvary road, which leads to suffering and death? The answer of the whole New Testament is this. The surprise about Jesus the Messiah is that he came to live a life of sacrificial, dying service before he comes a second time to reign in glory. And the surprise about discipleship is that it demands a life of sacrificial, dying service before we can reign with Christ in glory. So what James and John had to learn here, and what we all must learn, is that Jesus' journey, uh, journey to Jerusalem is our journey And if he set his face there to go and die, we must also die with him. One might be tempted to reason just the opposite way. This is sometimes how I begin to think about it or what I would prefer to think. Well, since Jesus suffered so much and died in our place, aren't we free to go straight to the head of the class and skip all the exams, as it were? Didn't he suffer so that we could have comfort? Didn't he die so that we could live? He bore abuse so that you and I could be esteemed. 
he gave up treasures of heaven so that we could lay up treasures here on earth. He bought the kingdom and paid for our entrance. Now we live in it with all of its earthly privileges. I've actually had some conversations at times, or even conversations in my own mind. He died so that I could live and store up for myself this happy place here on earth. But all of this is not biblical reasoning. It goes against the plain teaching in this very context. Luke 9, 23 and 24 actually reads, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Our command is to take up our cross and to follow Jesus on the very same Calvary road that he himself has also walked. When Jesus set his face to walk the Calvary road, he was not merely taking our place. He was setting our pattern. He is substitute and pace setter. If we seek to secure our life through returning evil for evil or surrounding ourselves with luxury in the face of human need, we will lose our life. We can save our life only if we follow Jesus on the Calvary road. I mentioned um, a book that Alf Lou, I think, gave it to me through Grace um, called Radical um, by David Platt. And he is a speaker that I heard about a year ago at a conference I attended. And um, his book actually uh, went through the New York Times bestseller list. But this is a little pamphlet, the Reader's Digest version of that book. But I'm going to read you an excerpt um, from this. He um, takes some of the scriptures from Luke 9 that we've been looking at. And um, I think it's, it's relevant here um, from his book. Do we really believe that Jesus is worthy of sacrifice in our lives? Our immediate thought would be, yes, sure, of course. But listen how we describe what it means to follow him. Ask Jesus to come into your heart. Invite Jesus to come into your life. Pray this prayer, sign this card, or walk down this aisle and accept Jesus as your personal Savior. You will not find one of these casual contemporary phrases in Scripture. Instead, in Jesus' mouth, you will find words that are foreign to us today. You will find phrases that show us he is worthy of far more than a polite invitation. He is worthy of supreme devotion. Let me give you a few examples. At the end of Luke 9, we find the stories of three men who approach Jesus, eager to follow him. Surprisingly, in each case, Jesus seems to try to talk them out of doing so. The first guy says, I will follow you wherever you go. Jesus responds, Foxes have holes and the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. In other words, Jesus tells this man that he can expect homelessness on the journey ahead. Even when the basic need of shelter is not guaranteed, Jesus is worthy of all of our trust. The second man tells Jesus that his father has just died. The man wants to go back, bury his father, and then follow Jesus. Jesus replies, let the dead bury their own dead, but you go and proclaim the kingdom of God. What could he mean by that? David Platt says, I remember distinctly the moment I learned that my own dad had died of a heart attack. In the days that followed, my heart was filled with an immense heaviness and a deep desire to honor my dad at his funeral. I cannot imagine hearing at that point these words from Jesus. Don't even go to your dad's funeral. There are more important things to do. 
Yet that's the essence of what Jesus tells the second man who comes up to him. Jesus is worthy of total allegiance and immediate obedience. A third man approaches Jesus and tells him that he wants to follow him. But before he does, he needs to say goodbye to his family. Makes sense. But Jesus tells the man, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for service in the kingdom of God. Luke 9.62, plainly put, or that verse is from Luke 9.62, plainly put, a relationship with Jesus requires absolute, undivided, exclusive affection. Trust me, even if it means becoming homeless. Follow me, even if it means letting someone else bury your dad. Love me, even if it means not saying goodbye to your family. Jesus is worthy of radical devotion. And he expects his disciples to be like him. And he wants them to know it is costly. The Calvary Road is not a road of material prosperity. This week I went to the uh, website of the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention and they estimate that there are 3,501 unreached people groups who are not engaged and are still waiting to hear the gospel. That means that there are unreached people, groups of people, I don't know how many thousands of people that that represents, but there are still people in our world who are yet to even hear the message of Jesus. They do not have access to the written word, the scriptures, nor have they been able to hear the word of God. There are millions of children starving with no fault of their own, and many people in our own country that are hard put because of joblessness and emptiness. It is therefore unconscionable that disciples of Jesus Christ can go right on indulging ourselves, promoting ourselves, and working as if we think we can gain, gain it all, a comfortable life, a good career, a decent family, and an easy retirement. Sure, we tack church attendance on all of this and think that we're doing a pretty decent job. But at the core of our lives, we are often consumed with a dream of success, safety, security, and satisfaction, and all of this world has to offer. It is extremely hard to fight against this culture from which we live, and there is great tension as a a follower of Jesus Christ to know. I often say, I just don't know how to balance it all, because I'm trying to hang on to both ends of it and make sense of it. And no matter how much we're trying to make sense of both ends of it, it can't usually fit together in the same space. And yet we are trying desperately to live safe, secure, reasonable, satisfied lives here on earth. I have very encouraged as I have conversation with many of you in our congregation. And I know some of you have alternative dreams. A dream of breaking loose from these shackles of self-serving consumer culture, a dream of doing something really radical, something radically different with your savings or your retirement plans or your house or with your free time or your job. 
And hand in hand with that comes an amazing freedom from vengeance. The more secure you are in God rather than things, the less inclined you are to return evil for evil. And the more open you are to nitty-gritty involvement with people who are marginalized and least love or not lovely or the needy in our world. And the more this happens, I am convinced the more striking and fruitful will be the witness of this faith community to Jesus Christ. I've been encouraged, as many of you have, by one of our uh, young adults in our congregation, Christy Liu. And if you attended our um, Christmas um, celebration and dinner, we prayed for Christy. And she was about to begin to embark upon a journey of moving to the downtown east side here in Vancouver and working among the poor and the marginalized. And I'd like to invite Christy to come. Is she not here? Oh, there you are. Hey, Chris. I, n- I never found you this morning. I'm like, where is she? Where is she? <laughs> um, Christy, as I said, is living in a, an intentional Christian community with an organization called Servants. And um, you've been there for about how long, Christy? Okay, so the last two months she's been living. And have you made a decision whether you're going to extend and continue on or not? Yeah, I'll be there for another three months. So until the end of June. Okay. And um, let me grab another one. And so, um, so the last couple of months, and so now you're going to stay on at least through the end of June. And I, I had the privilege of going and having a community meal with one of the evenings that Christy was um, probably just, you were just a few weeks there. Uh, Carol Wu and I uh, went down and had a meal with Christy, and I was. And she actually cooked that night. It was delicious. She made shepherd's pie, so I got to eat Christy's food and enjoy um, a meal with her fellow um, ministers and then also people that were in the community. So I got to meet some of the folks that she's living with and, and serving in that area. And I was really struck at that particular time as I saw Christy there that, that God was doing a pretty cool thing in her life. And I felt very profound that Christy would have words that needed to be spoken back into our faith community. And I know that that's probably pretty daunting for you, Christy, to think about that. And being a young woman who has grown up in, in our congregation and in our church. And yet, I would ask you, is there anything that you would want to share with us or to speak back into us as you have been living in this, um, this space and ministering among the poor and the marginalized? Um, I guess one of the things is that I've just been struck by how God doesn't really call us to a safe or secure life, like you were talking about. Um, And I've just been really touched by how stepping out of your comfort zone and being stretched really changes people. And how, yeah, then prayer and reading scripture really becomes the core of who you are and those things start to make more sense. I think growing up in this church has been really amazing because I've um, been blessed by a lot of wisdom and a lot of teaching, but in some ways I've grown up pretty comfortable here and um, haven't been challenged in certain ways, but living in the downtown east side and um, seeing people's lives there I think has really stretched me and um, challenges me to have to rely on God. I don't think... Well, at least some of us, I don't think, are used to that. And it's easy to 
kind of get used to a routine of going to church and um, just seeing God in this building. But um, it's so cool to see God outside of this building and see how he's working in really powerful ways. Um, What would you say to someone who... I'm sure that people come up to you all the time and are really concerned about your safety. And like, oh my goodness, you're living off of Hastings Street, you know, in the downtown east side. What would you, or perhaps they said, what, you you have a university degree and why are you wasting it uh, doing what you're doing? Or when are you going to finish doing this and then use your degree? Or So what would you say to someone who has um, concerns about your safety or that you've thrown away your education or that um, maybe you're not living up to your full potential? (laughs) Um, As for safety, uh, I was told by someone a long time ago that the safest place you can be is in the middle of God's will. And for me right now, I feel like that this is where I'm supposed to be and what I'm supposed to be doing. So, um, yeah, I think... It's it's hard to let go of a, an idea of feeling safe, but I think that's an illusion. I think God takes care of us, and even if I was living in the suburbs and doing something safe with my life, I yeah, I think it's not really um, a life that I would want. Um, yeah, as for throwing away my <laughs> degree and things like that, I feel like the my time in school has been really helpful for me as I've been down here. Um, the courses that I've taken and the experiences I've had have kind of brought me to this place. So I don't really see it as a waste. I see it as kind of part of the journey that I've been on, um, and I don't really know what's going to come up next. But I feel like I've been really changed by my experience down there, and it's hard to just go back to normal. Um, <laughs> And I I don't know what that looks like anymore. Well, we don't. I personally hope you don't go back to normal and that you would continue to live out this kind of life in front of us and challenging more of us to step into the places that you are walking. Um, One of the... If you go to the website of Servants uh, Vancouver, one of the things that they say in their description is, says, we commit ourselves to simplifying and consolidating our lifestyle in order to be more intentional about our calling to build God's kingdom among the poor. So in these last two months, can you tell us how you've had to simplify and consolidate your life? Um, I think materially, uh, we live pretty simply at the house, so that's, that's been an adjustment. Um, and just having to get used to living in community and um, kind of not basing my schedule on, um, yeah, just myself, but having to consider the other people in the house and sharing that space with them, I think, has been um, part of simplifying as well. We don't live with the TV. Um, We get a lot of our groceries donated, so our food really depends on what we have. So it's it's creative a lot of the time. Um, I think... It's also about leaving our schedules open and not being committed to a job or a volunteer opportunity. Uh, We live in this area 24-7 and allow ourselves to be open um, to people dropping in all the time. So I think that's part of it, too. Just, um, yeah, not not being committed to a career or um, moving our way up the ladder, but um, just being available and open to journey with people. Um, and allowing God to work through that. I think that's been one of the biggest adjustments. Mm. Um, Yeah, I'm used to living by a schedule and kind of planning out my life, but this has been really awesome in teaching me that 
um, yeah, the best way to make God laugh is by trying to make your own plans. <laughs> and so I really discovered that when you um, leave things open to God, he can really speak into your life in really powerful ways and work in ways that you totally wouldn't be able to see otherwise. Um, yeah, and I've just gotten used to kind of walking around the streets and praying as I go and just praying that God would bring people across my path. And he has in really cool divine encounters with people that I don't think I would have been open to before this. Uh, well, like I said, I really appreciate you living out what it means to follow after Jesus in your context of how God has called you and, and how he is shaping you. And I sincerely mean this to you and to us as a congregation that I, I really do believe that God has things that he wants to weave into us as a congregation. And I think you're showing us by example what that can look like. And so I've committed to standing with Christy in prayer during this season and being open in my own personal life as well. There's a lot of things that God needs to shape into me and to mold me, mold into me and reorient me in my thinking and how I'm living my life and what I'm doing with my time and my resources. And so I, I want us to be open to this journey as a faith community. Would God turn us upside down and shake us out that we aren't just to be a collection of people that gather here and worship him on a Sunday and be shaken up here while we're under the roof of this wooden structure or brick or whatever it is um, and not be shaken out into our communities and live lives that are very radically different from the culture that we live in. And so thanks for being brave in that and pray um let's continue to stand alongside her and asking god what that can look like for us so thank you christy yeah would you join me in prayer 